Hello and welcome to Ancient Futures, where we talk about contemporary afflictions and find some remedies in timeless traditions. Today I'm joined by Anna Schaffner, who's a former academic and uh, now a burnout coach, as we discuss uh, this career change resulted from burning out herself, so she really does know what she's talking about. Um, she was also, though, a cultural historian, so she talks about these things in big picture terms, and being exhausted is far from a new problem. However, there are some modern twists that uh, make it quite widespread, particularly our fixation in uh, modern culture on being productive. Um, combine that with perfectionism and uh, a precarious economic situation in which many of us are living, and you have the perfect recipe for working too hard, which is really what we get to grips with in this conversation. Now, one important antidote which we unpack is uh, finding joy in simple hobbies, and that really means doing things for pleasure rather than as new outlets for our performative competitiveness. Um, and uh, really, the uh, Underlying story here, of course, is pressures that uh, come from our social context, which aren't necessarily within our power to control. So we do have to be able to swim against the tide a bit. And uh, that is, however, something we can work on internally, um, perhaps to start with by not calling it work. Now, Anna's book draws extensively on a range of different traditions, particularly Stoicism, but uh, also Chinese philosophy and uh, ideas from various schools of psychotherapy, as well as uh, yeah, some literary classics. So uh, to find out more about her work uh, and uh, her book itself, um, visit the link in the show notes to her website. Um, Meanwhile, if you'd like to support this podcast as a paying subscriber, you can visit its home at ancientfutures.substack.com and uh, your donations do really make a big difference uh, to the time I can devote to this work and they're greatly appreciated. For now though, let's explore how to go beyond burnout with Anna Schaffner. So, Anna, welcome. Hi, welcome. Thank you for sending me a copy of your book, um, Exhausted, an A to Z for the Weary, um, which I'm very keen to discuss with you in quite some depth because uh, I'm often prone to feeling rather weary myself these days, and I don't think I'm alone in that. Yeah, yeah. Um, welcome to the club. <laughs> and, um, yeah, a lot of people feel very overwhelmed and chronically exhausted and stressed and burned out these days. And I think there are some interesting, you know, cultural causes for that epidemic of exhaustion. And uh, speaking of cultural causes, um, as I understand it, your academic speciality was a sort of historian of cultural causes of things or cultural trends. So you've been looking at this not just in the modern context, um, in fact, have written academic books about these subjects already. But there's, there's something different about the, the framing of the ideas here. And uh, they're in sort of much more bite sized chapters. Um, so I wonder if you could say a little bit about how you came to write the book and who you you're aiming it at? Yeah, so um, my uh, 
previous two books were more on the academic side of the spectrum, but I have now left academia and I'm now a burnout coach and and a writer, full-time writer. And I partly left academia because of burnout. Um, but in my academic life, I did investigate the long history of exhaustion and I was really intrigued by the fact that you know nowadays we always feel as though hours are the most wearying times ever and as though you know hours is the true age of exhaustion um that we have never been so depleted before and we tend to look back to um you know the other side of history where we imagine the grass is greener and everything was easier so we we tend to have a very nostalgic vision of the past, a romantic vision of the past. Um, and a couple of years ago, when I first started to investigate exhaustion as an academic topic, I, I was really struck by the fact that sociologists always tend to talk about, you know, the age of exhaustion and how exhausting neoliberal capitalism is, you know, the competitive um, mindsets that we have all um inherited by by living in these systems and that uh, the achievement diktat the productivity diktat and of course yeah. new technologies are draining us of of our energy left right and center and um i i did begin to wonder whether that really was the case um not not that i want to deny that these factors are incredibly draining and exhausting yeah. and i know that you know <laughs> From, from my own personal experience. Um, but I have discovered that people have always worried about exhaustion and that um, the depletion of our energies and the waning of our strengths is really a timeless human topic. And, you know, it's partly what, what makes us human. We worry about um, losing energy. We worry about the fact that our energies might not be replenishable. Um, and discussions about exhaustion and its causes can be traced back all the way to ancient China. And in fact, um, we have a lot to learn from the long history of exhaustion. Um, and some of the cures and counsels and therapeutics that our ancestors have devised are really wonderful sources for us in the modern age. Because, you know, as you know, Daniel, uh, new is not always better. And sometimes ancient <laughs> wisdom traditions can hold um, the keys to very modern phenomena. So I, I wrote this book called Exhaustion History um, almost 10, 10 years ago now. Um, and I looked at, you know, the kind of theories that people have come up with and the therapeutics that people have come up with um, when they talked about exhaustion in the past. And it's really fascinating, you know, because the... Um, the reasons for uh, well, the causes on which people tend to pin exhaustion vacillate massively from external to internal and from somatic to psychological to spiritual. So there's a lovely kind of um, jumping from one to the other throughout history. And, um, and in the past, people, you know, worried, for example, about the the malign impact of planet Saturn on our yeah. energy levels, or they worried about a, a, an imbalance between the four bodily humors and, you know, an uh, exaggerated quantity of, um, of uh, black bile, you know, which was thought to produce 
melancholia. And people have also worried about, you know, social changes with which they were unhappy. And I think we still do, and that's okay. But often theories about exhaustion tend to get tied up with uh, cultural criticism. So, you know, the, in the 19th century, some physicians wrote about um, the emancipation of women as a major cause for their exhaustion. You know, the fact that women try to enter into public life and they warned them sternly against that and said, don't do it. You know, your energies will not, your energy levels will not be able to cope with that. And you will, you know, suffer horrible physical and mental consequences if you do so. So theories of exhaustion can also be weaponized for very specific mm -hmm. agendas. So I, yeah, sorry, it's a very long answer to your question, Daniel. So, so I got very, very interested in the history of exhaustion. Um, and I was also driven to the topic because I I, I often am exhausted and um, at some point I suffered a, a proper burnout in academia. So it's a topic that, uh, you know, that in, intrigues me both um, from a theoretical point of view and from a very personal point of view. And you're now though working as a coach. So I'm assuming that part of the process of writing this book is to to try and say these ideas are not just sort of theoretically interesting, these <laughs> directly applicable to, to people's lives. Um, yeah, yeah. And, that, and I would say the, the new book, Exhausted and A to Z for the Weary, is based on the research I've done for, for the more academic book, but it's also, and this is really important, it's also very much inspired by my practice as a burnout coach, you know, because I do think that the um, topic of exhaustion and any any kind of self-help related advice needs to be anchored in in experience and in practice and cannot just, you know, be theoretical in nature. And when when I felt so depleted, I actually benefited enormously from therapy and from coaching. Um, and I really fell in love with coaching and then decided to, to train as a coach myself. Um, and then because of my, you know, academic focus on exhaustion, I sort of naturally started to um, coach the exhausted. And, and a lot of the clients I work with, um, have have suffered burnout are uh, in the midst of burnout are uh, recovering from burnout are about to slip into burnout so um because of my own uh, you know background my own personal experiences with burnout and because of um the you know research i've done on the topic i sort of naturally felt that this is the area where it can can be most of help um so the new book is very is a combination of um historical insights on the topic and very practical advice. It is self-help, but it's self-help that also tries to mobilize sociological and philosophical and historical ideas um, as therapeutics, as healing ingredients. And I do think that's really important when it comes to a topic such as exhaustion, which has inner and outer causes um, and which has very often very clear structural causes and we need to be aware of what they are and we need to be aware of you know the broader cultural narratives that may impact us and the you know economic system in which we operate and how that might contribute to our exhaustion as well
Well, absolutely. And, uh, you know, we're swimming in this water that we perhaps don't realize is, you know, particular temperature or full of whatever ingredients, uh, because we're just in it. And uh, it's very hard to step outside of it and see the difference that could exist. Um, but then again, there's a limit to how much we can change the environment within which we have to operate, we have to then perhaps, you know, look within to what we can do to be more resilient in, in it. Um, and uh, I think one of the themes that comes up again and again in the book is is related to work. Um, um, and it's in a work context that you describe your own burnout um, and uh, this sort of societal pressure, partly from economics, but also partly cultural expectations of ourselves, even turning, as you put it at one point, our hobbies into into work, you know, ways of trying to monetize a side hustle or even just to, to sort of see them as another achievement we can boast about and yeah, show off on social media for. Um, so I, th I, th I think coming back to your own experience, it would be really helpful if you'd be happy to talk about it to describe the process of going beyond just being exhausted into burnout. What was it for you? What were the factors that that, that pushed you over the edge? Mm. Yeah. Um, so I, I would say that it was slow. It was a very slow process and it just gradually got worse. You know, it's like the, the frog in boiling water. You kind of don't know exactly when when it tips over and when it becomes totally um, unsustainable and unbearable. But I, I, I did feel that, you know, the kind of psychosocial pressures of um, academia have become much worse in the last uh, last decade um so when i started i think we you know we were in a phase of expansion and building and creativity and and it, and i had 10 amazing years in academia and then things gradually changed and shifted and um in my subject we also ended up with uh, fewer and fewer students so there was a kind of anxiety about sustainability and um you know i think it didn't bring out the best in us including myself i also you know this is something that people don't really talk about very much we we, we think about key symptoms of burnout you know chronic fatigue and i had that i felt very tired i had very little energy for anything but work but i would also say that you know we, we can become very bitter and irritable um, when we when we live without enough energy and appreciation and joy for a very long time and I could I could see that in myself you know I could see myself becoming a very bitter person you know focusing very much on on um on you know the pain points and then what wasn't working well and and I think at some point I just woke up and I was like I, I don't want to be that person anymore and I don't want to live like that anymore and it just felt like my life had turned really gray and colorless and um and I think you know the the environment in which I was was particularly toxic um you know it really I think the precariousness of of mm. our situation brought out the very worst in in all of us you know people become very selfish and territorial and and hurtful um and yeah i just at some point really felt like you know this is not worth it anymore what i'm what i'm getting from from being in this job is um is no longer worth the the price I'm paying with my health, my mental health, um, with my well-being. And I did have a at that point, I did have a sense of what I wanted to do instead. You know, I had discovered coaching 
Um, and I had always been very, very interested in psychology. So I had a strong kind of, I'd rather do that sense, you know, and, I, and then it took me a couple of years to build that up and to make it happen and then to to put together the courage to jump. Um, but I, I would also say that, you know, that that was the personal dimension and the unique um, situation in which I was. But I would also say that I I have noticed in myself the, you know, the kind of deeper cultural toxic narratives around work um, and how they really impact on, on individual lives. You know, this kind of sense that you always have to be productive. You always have to do something. You always have to use your time wisely. Um, the idea of, of having a break, resting, doing something joyful or just for pleasure, you know, being like a waste of time. I, I felt very dominated by that, you know, kind of very dour <laughs> Protestant work <laughs> ethic um and it's it's not helpful and and that also got me interested in the question of how how a lot of us are really really um you know shaped by these narratives around work and time and productivity and we tend to think that they're quite new that they're very unique to the neoliberal techno capitalist age but they're actually very old that was also something that i discovered in my research you know that they have religious origins mm. they go back all the way to um the idea of of laziness and um you know Achidia, melancholia as uh, as sinful states of mind, um, and they go. They can be traced back to the kind of Calvinistic Puritan um, idea that success in our worldly lives is a sign that we are one of the elect, that we are one of the chosen ones. So um, Protestants tried to kind of manipulate the the sign of being a chosen one, thinking that would ensure salvation and. Um, you know, being one of the elect in the afterlife. So, so you know, there's that fascinating process in which, you know, religious beliefs became tangled up with pro the Protestant work ethic. And the sociologist Max Weber has written an amazing piece about the Protestant work ethic and the spirit of capitalism, which I think is still a really, really um, well-observed uh, very well observed piece of work from which we we have a lot to learn you know this kind you... of entanglement of salvation and and work and success that's something that's still very alive in a lot of us no i think you're right there um i was also though struck by uh, a catholic context for some of these ideas as well you were talking about Dante and the divine comedy uh, encountering the lazy in the circles of hell um but then also there's this uh, reference you make at one point to this Italian spirit of dolce far niente, just uh, doing nothing for the sake of it and enjoying it. So sort of the the, the celebration of, you know, um, idleness of a certain kind. Um, so yeah, I, I wonder, if, is there something in that worldview that's just different enough to resist these pressures? Or is this something that, you know, modern citizens of the globalised world are all subject to whether or not they grow up in that Protestant work ethic culture of you know, North, Northern Europe and North America? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, without wanting to, you know, like make wild generalizations. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I think there's still, you know, a kind of, a perceived difference between northern Protestant countries and southern, more historically speaking, Catholic countries where, 
you know, where there's more of a joie de vivre and a, a little bit more hedonism and an ability to um, enjoy the moment, to live better, you know, and I think it's true that the Italians and the Spanish and the French, they, they do know how to live better in their daily lives than, than most of us do. <laughs> you know, there's, <laughs> That's true. Kind of, there's just a kind of um, capacity to, to be present and to, um, and to allow yourself moments of um, enjoyment and, uh, you know, good food and fun and laughter. I mean, I'm sure that's not always the case, but there there is a bit of a, you know, difference culturally speaking, I think, um, in that, in the sense that also kind of cultures with more light and more warmth um, have, have a slightly different pace <laughs> to life, from which we can learn, you know, which is something I, I envy tremendously. Although I'm also struck by another counter example. I remember working in Zurich many years ago and uh, trying to speak to anybody on the phone between about 1 and 3 p.m. was impossible because they just have a long lunch break and uh, that's a very Calvinist kind of place. So it was, yeah, it was an interesting, interesting contrast. Yeah. Um, but coming back to your own experience, I'm really curious to know what it was that actually showed you the possibility of something different, because the way you described it was very bleak. And uh, you use an example, again, another literary example of Bartleby the Scrivener, who basically just opts out, you know, th things do not appeal to him, I would prefer not to is his mantra. So eventually he retreats into death. But, uh, you know, you thankfully found a way back from feeling bleak by, as you put it earlier, thinking, you know, I would rather be doing this other thing. But where was the seed sown for that? What was it that turned the corner for you? Was there a particular practice or a particular idea that uh, you were exposed to that showed you there was light at the end of this tunnel? Yeah, that's a great question. So I, I think, yeah, I love the Bartleby example, you know, because in, in coaching, we often talk about dead men's goals, you know, a lot of my clients come to me and they say, I no longer want this, you know, yeah. I can't live like that anymore. I, I want to stop doing X, Y, and Z, but they don't know what they want to do instead. You know, they don't have that positive vision of what they actually do want. And Bartleby is this extreme example of someone who just says, I prefer not to, to everything <laughs> that is proposed to him. And in the end, he just sort of starves himself to death and, and withers away and dies. Um, but I do think it's very important when we are so trapped in unpleasant circumstances that we somehow manage to get back in touch with, you know, a vision of a better life or something that, you know, makes us feel alive and that we want to do that we actively want to do and that is often dead you know when we're very very burned out and when we when we're very very exhausted we don't have that you know we just um we just languish in a kind of dark gray zone i think in my case i benefited from coaching myself so i had a fantastic coach i had a really good therapist i could feel how great you know, that those practices can be and how you can gradually get back in touch with what you need and what you want and what you long for. Um, I also luckily had two friends who um, 
have founded a startup and they kind of gradually allowed me to join them and they kind of mentored me and um, and then I trained as a coach myself and I started coaching and I always found it hugely energizing and rewarding you know coaching is just you get so much back from working with um, people it's it's such a privilege to you know to help and to talk and to to be your service I always just found that hugely energizing and I think as soon as I started doing it I realized how much I love it and that I would much rather do that than what I was doing <laughs> so I was yeah. I, think I was lucky that that somehow you know came came my way and um and I think I also really noticed and I think you probably know that too Daniel that you know a lot of people in academia are quite bitter mm. <laughs> and not very collegial. And I noticed in the coaching world that the complete opposite is true for that world. You know, like I think I've met so many amazing coaches and I was so surprised and blown away by how kind and helpful people are in that world. And also coaching other people, you know, I just, I just kind of it opened up my opened up my um eyes to what else is out there and that what what I was experiencing wasn't normal <laughs> you know, that, yeah. that there's a better world out there yeah well I think that brings me probably to my favorite chapter which was uh the one about joy um because that seems to be the key you know in some ways to 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 finding some hope again is is whatever it might be that can just switch on that light of enjoyment just for the sheer pleasure of doing something it, it has no need to justify itself on any other level um that's that's what it, i guess activates some of this potential towards you know seeking fulfillment in other ways rather than focusing on feeling frustrated and bitter and resentful um, and so I wonder if you could say a little bit about uh, some of your own experiences with that, because that was part of what I liked so much about the chapter. You share quite a few of your own stories and uh, talk yeah. about what worked for you, and particularly running, I think you were saying, uh, despite not being you know, particularly fast or particularly focused on any other thing than enjoying moving through the uh, the pleasant surroundings. Yeah, yeah. So so I, I'm a big, big, big believer in the power of hobbies to to function as antidotes for our exhaustion because um, they are purely non-instrumental activities that serve simply the function of making us feel good, making us feel alive, making us feel connected to ourselves and to a sense of peace and to a sense of aliveness. Um, and often we lose you know, the capacity to to even have a hobby or even know what might help us or what feels good when we're very, very exhausted. You know, a lot of people have nothing but their work. And when they suffer at work and they only have work, then that is really dramatic. And um, so I do think it's extremely important to, to have something outside of work that is a source of joy and fulfillment and yeah in my case I I run and as you say I'm not a particularly talented runner but it doesn't matter I mean I think what is also important for hobbies is that we don't need to be brilliant at what we do we don't need to yes. be success driven or you know achievement driven in that sphere I really just run because I love running and I don't measure how fast I run or how long I run and I'm sure I'm not particularly um 
fast compared to others, but it doesn't matter. It just makes me feel good and alive. And I love being out in nature and I love moving. And it's a kind of meditation for me. I run mainly for my head because it clears my mind. Um, and I also do kickboxing and um, I'm really not talented at that. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> you know, and I started very late and um, I just love it. You know, I just, I just feel so good um, doing it and after it. And um, yeah, I also, it felt good to do something a little bit more martial, you know, because I think mm. um, I do yoga as well. But I did also, especially when I was still at university, I had a lot of anger in me. And it felt really good to to let that out. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. I think one of the problems that, uh, you know, again, this is probably cultural, um, a lot of people are struggling with is this uh, <laughs> yeah, difficulty tuning in, not just to what we would like to be doing instead, but even to just what we're feeling at all. Um, and you describe in the chapter on urgency that uh, people are often trying to keep themselves busy as a way of, you know, avoiding feeling things and, and uh, you know I wonder what is it that we're so scared of feeling as, as a culture um, and when you're thinking about the clients you're working with um, what is it when they get in touch with it um, that, that enables them to cope with this thing that they were so afraid of, of actually feeling? Yeah it's a great question Daniel I, I think we keep busy in order not to feel too much at some level, right? There's when we always do, we don't have to focus in on on, on being. And mm -hmm. sometimes when we stop working and when we stop being very busy, we that can be very frightening. You know, that can actually come as quite a shock when we when we notice feelings that we try not to experience, you know, such as sadness or anger or bitterness or irritability. Um, and when we're kind of very much confronted with those feelings. And I, I think a common dilemma a lot of us um, probably experience is that the more we work, the emptier our life becomes in other domains, right? It's like living in just one house, one room, of a big house and then all the other rooms become cluttered and cold and dusty and empty and then and you know and we, and our world shrinks and we just spend all our time in that one room and then when we step outside of that room we kind of notice the emptiness and the you know the kind of frightening neglect <laughs> and i think that can happen with work you know when we become very addicted to our work and when work is our one and only source of meaning and purpose um then looking at you know our relationships our friendships our physical health our mental health can can come as a shock and and then it's easier to just continue to work rather than try to the devil you know yeah, yeah exactly yeah, yeah. There's another dimension to it that you highlight, um, and I wonder if it's just an extension of the same thing or if there's an extra ingredient, and that's perfectionism. And uh, that's not just about, you know, keeping busy. Um, there's a particular quality to it, which is absolutely impossible. It's torturing oneself with the idea of a, you know, a, an unattainable sort of target. Um, and I wonder what's behind that. Yeah, I think perfectionism, you know, there there's a lot of research on a strong correlation between burnout and perfectionism. 
Um, and again, perfectionism is culturally um, validated. I think, you know, we, we, we live in a culture that cherishes and fetishizes perfection. And um, perfectionism is also often a trait that makes us really successful in the workplace. But if we over-exercise that trait, it can backfire. It can actually become something that um, becomes harmful. And um, and there's some research on, you know, like perfectionism having two components. One is um, perfectionist aspirations, which is positive, you know, wanting to do your job as well as you can, wanting to do everything you do with care and with, you know, deliberate attention and, and hoping for a, a, an outcome that is as good as you can make it. That's that's not necessarily negative. But what is what can be harmful is perfectionist judgments. And that is us criticizing ourselves for um, not having achieved our very high ideas, you know, and that's related to to the inner critic and um, harsh uh, self-judgments and a kind of very negative voice inside ourselves that kind of always drags everything in the mud. And if we have really high standards, unachievably high um, perfectionist standards in our head, um, we will fall foul of them all the time. And then we um, we berate ourselves and we, you know, we, we never celebrate our successes or we never think, hey, that was just good enough. Um, and we work harder and, and more because we have these really high standards. Um, and I would also say that perfectionism um, can mask, you know, a sense of we're not really valuable as such you know we need to earn our value all the time we need to demonstrate our value we need to achieve in order to feel worthy um so perfectionism can have you know origins in in much deeper childhood uh, based uh, negative core assumptions of ourselves you know that we're not lovable or worthy as such but we need to always work very hard to demonstrate that value and to convince ourselves and others um, of the fact that we hold value, that we are, you know, human beings who have something to contribute. Oh, absolutely. And uh, that really is the core of it in a way of, you know, trying to to just be okay with being ourselves. <laughs> and mm -hmm. and uh, the world of work is uh, obviously, you know, not going to tell us <laughs> you to sit in the corner and be yourself. It makes demands on us, but we need to be able to navigate it somewhat on our own terms. And that's obviously quite challenging because yeah, these uh, these times are difficult, and um, it's it's you know, not easy to make a living. And um, speaking as somebody who works totally freelance, I'm doing everything, you know, sort of juggling several other things while I'm trying to do the thing I'm doing. Always aware that they're not necessarily all adding up to you know, anything like the last salary I earned in 2009. So it's um, it's all a bit stressful from that point yeah. of view, um, yeah. and you know we have to find a way to manage all of that. So. I guess I come back to this question, you know, it's all obviously very interconnected. Um, and um, before we sort of dive into some of the ways of making sense of the interconnection, I wonder how you made sense of the the task of trying to organise these thoughts into 26 separate chapters organised by letters of the alphabet, given that there's so much interweaving of ideas there. Um, were, were, were there some of those letters that you wanted to use more than once? And uh, were oh, there yeah. maybe some that you, you struggled <laughs> to find a theme for? 
Yeah, the the A to Z structure. Um, it was like I wanted to present my my ideas in a much more readable and um, digestible format. Um, mm. And I also wanted to keep my chapters really short because I know when when we're exhausted, we, we just don't have the headspace for for long complex arguments. Um, and the A to Z structure, I think I'd, I'd just come across a couple of books like the, um, I think the the novel Cure. Yeah, that's the one that. I was thinking of. It's uh, yeah. there's a blurb on the cover from one of yeah. the authors of that. So, yeah. yeah, the novel Cure and a few other books that have used that format in a hugely creative way. And I also like creative constraint, you know, when you work yeah. within a, quite narrowly defined structure that forces you to to be very creative within that structure i i like the challenge of that constraint um and i yeah i was inspired by some books who, who had used that a to z format in a really beautiful way um and i just you know i just started started playing with that um format and then was like yeah i think i can make that work i mean there were obviously some more challenging letters like why (laughs) (laughs) but in a way they they forced me to you know to think about what i wanted to say in in a slightly more creative and playful way i think it also Mm. introduced a bit of playfulness and um that was important to me because uh i'm i'm still trying to shake off you know (laughs) my former academic identity and writing style so so that helped me greatly to to do so yeah well actually that brings up another thought that came into my mind uh, you end you f- uh, found a solution to the z dilemma by reaching for a german word zeitgeist and uh yeah I, I was sort of moved to wonder in relation to joy um whether there is the possibility of perhaps even coining a new word maybe it exists in the german language i don't know but uh, one word that uh, english speakers know quite well is schadenfreude and there's certainly a lot of that around in the academic context you know taking pleasure in other people's misery um, but what about freudenfreude taking pleasure in other people's pleasure <laughs> could that yeah. be something that could be developed is is that even a yeah. word <laughs> You know what? There is a word, and it's very similar to the one you were proposing, Danny. It's mitfreude. Ah. It's to um, get joy from the joy of others. And I actually chatted to um, uh, a friend of mine um, about that concept on on a previous podcast, you know, which was about oh. Schadenfreude and mitfreude, and how everyone knows Schadenfreude, but nobody knows the concept of mitfreude, which does exist. I mean, it's not as widely used, um, but it is really the idea that we can um, derive pleasure from other people's achievements, successes, and happiness. And um, there is some research on appreciation and the relationship yeah. between burnout and appreciation. And I find that research fascinating. And it shows us that um, when we don't achieve appreciate, when we don't receive appreciation at work, we're almost twice as likely to burn out. And I I have experienced that. And a lot of my clients are experiencing that, you know, when we feel underappreciated and undervalued and, you know, just not, not taken seriously and not praised at work that can um, cause real social pain Um, and that can be utterly devastating for our sense of self you know it's like being in a relationship where you're where you're no longer appreciated by your partner it doesn't feel good at all Um, and I would say that the, the beauty of appreciation is that 
we can also feel better when we give appreciation. So we need to we need to receive appreciation at work, but we can also um, really benefit by giving appreciation. So even if we are in a toxic workplace, in a toxic environment, we can still um, derive benefits from making other people feel appreciated. And that, you know, comes back to the idea of, of Mitfreude. And when we, when we focus on what they're doing well, what they achieve, and when we articulate that, you know, when we actually tell them so, that makes them feel great and that also makes us feel, feel better. A genuine win-win situation, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, there is actually a crossover with um, Eastern philosophy in this context. Um, there's a, a word uh, used in, in both Buddhist traditions and some yoga texts as well, mudita, which uh, means you know, appreciative joy, joy on behalf of others. And it's one of these four qualities that are known as the Brahma Viharas, um, these sort of uh, you know, divine ways of being. Um, in, beginning with uh, loving kindness and compassion, uh, the third, mudita, less well known, <laughs> and the final one, equanimity. So it's a way of actually bringing about absolute peace of mind through, you know, an appreciation, not just of, you know, one's own pleasures, but <laughs> those of others. Um, yeah. And that sort of leads me into the deeper sort of uh, thought I had around this structure. And um, because you've organized everything you know, by uh, concept rather than sort of by specific advice or um, particular themes. I wonder which um, you know, traditions, because you did emphasize the traditional aspect, uh, have 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 shaped your approach the most. Um, there's references to a huge variety of sources in the book. Um, in fact, it's almost like you know, a, not quite a novel cure, but a, you know, a guide to world literature on some on some levels. There's lots of different strands in there. But uh, I wonder if there's one particular tradition of wisdom that shapes your thinking more than others yeah yeah i think i think i'm probably stoicism mm. i'm a huge fan of um stoic philosophy and the idea of focusing our energy on what we can control and learning to accept with you know cheer and equanimity what we cannot control and of course, as you know, Daniel, you know, there's a lot of overlap between Stoic philosophy and, and, and ancient Eastern traditions as well. Um, and so I think the Stoic circle of control is a fantastic tool for, for anyone who feels overwhelmed and overburdened. You know, the idea of focusing our limited energy, our uh, especially when we don't have a lot of it, it's very important that we handle had handled a little we have wisely and focusing on that what we can can actually control and where we can make a difference and where we can be impactful and learning to accept what is outside of our control that can be hugely liberating if we don't expend too much mental cognitive and emotional energy on on what what we cannot change anyway uh, of course, what is changeable and what isn't changeable is another another big question, and there's a lot of debate around that too. But um, if we you know if we apply it to the more obvious things, it it can be quite a quite an inspiring tool. Um, and I would also say that you know acceptance and commitment therapy is mm -hmm. uh, um, a modern. Uh, third wave cognitive behavioral um, therapeutic school that I find hugely helpful and that has its roots in many of the traditions that you would be very familiar with, um, including 
um, Buddhist mindfulness practices and, and acceptance practices from, you know, Taoism and other traditions. And I think the, you know, the idea of um, becoming an objective observer of our thoughts rather than being deeply entangled with our thoughts and emotions is another uh, absolutely crucial um, practice that can can help us when we're, when we feel exhausted and depleted you know this idea of of um noting that we feel anger rather than saying i am so angry you go like i note i'm experiencing anger and you create that gap between yourself and your anger or yourself and your irritation or sadness or whatever it is that you feel and i love about acceptance and commitment therapy that the idea is not to fight those emotions you know or to reason ourselves out of them you know as is the case in cognitive and behavioral therapy but in acceptance and commitment therapy it's all about noticing them accepting them being with them without getting caught up in them and then they they naturally you know change into something else because emotion is sort of energy in motion if we don't fight mm. these emotions they they change quite naturally so i find that a hugely hugely effective tool you know especially for clients who have um a strong inner critic who always tells them you're you you know you're shit at your job you're not good at this you're unlovable <laughs> your X, Y, and Z, you know, and when, when, when people have a very strong inner critic, that diffusion technique can be incredibly powerful. And it's very ancient, you know, it's like, I think it, it's, it's come into our awareness in, in lots of different guises, but I'm sure you, you will um, know its root, roots in, in, in the traditions that you are an expert in. Well, probably the oldest source I know is uh, the earliest of the Upanishads, which is talking about how to find the true self by ruling out all of the things that we're not. So anything you can identify yourself with can't be the true self. That's just some limited label that you've chosen to apply. And, and the truth is always one stage further back than that. So when you run out of words, that's who you are, basically. Yeah. You are none of these things. You're, you're the, the consciousness behind them. Um, yeah. so yeah that's probably the earliest expression i know of but there may well be older ones yeah. yeah yeah that's a beautiful one whenever you think i am this you know you're not that <laughs> exactly yeah, yeah yeah and i'm curious though about um, this actual application of some of these ideas uh, you mentioned the circle of control exercise specifically in the book um, and i wonder if you might just talk us through very briefly what that looks like um, to, to actually be able to start to narrow down what we can control and to let go of the things that we can't yeah, yeah, the circle of control exercise entails, first of all, that we make a list of our core stressors. You know, so first of all, just creating that awareness of what it is that stresses us most in our lives. Um, and then once we've got this list of external and internal stressors, um, we can then uh, draw two concentric circles on a sheet of paper, one smaller, one nestling in the other. And then we can put our stressors into the respective circles. And the outer one is the circle of things that we cannot control. And the inner one is the circle of things that we can control. And then the idea is to focus all our energy on the um, stressors that are in the inner circle. Now, 
you know, there's a lot of, as we mentioned, there, there is probably, you know, we could have deep philosophical debates about where the boundaries are between what we can control and what we can't control. And the Stoics were very extreme about it. And they basically said anything external is outside of our control. And the only thing we can truly ever control is our reactions to and our judgments of external events. And they were very, very rigorous about that. And they said we should not, um, you know, put our heart on any of the externals and really just focus all our energy on cultivating our um, our our mindsets, our attitudes, our judgments, um, and and learning to uh, learning to manage these, learning to manage our horizon of expectation. I mean, they were very hardcore that way. And there is <laughs> a gray zone, you know, and I will not deny that, you know, the kind of outer and inner ring structure is quite simplistic in its way and probably debatable, but it can still be a very powerful tool when we're very exhausted. You know, just just for example, saying, hey, I, I will not be able to change this person and their behavior. So what do I want to do about it? How do I want to show up with this person who will always behave that way, right? Like when we have a toxic boss, for example, um, it's like, you know, you, you won't be able to change that person, but you can, um, you can to a certain extent think about and put your energy on how you want to show up in that situation, what you do want to do, what you don't want to do, who you want to be, in that dynamic uh, that's a very constructive way of putting it and um you know in the end of course there's going to be a gray area because if we take the sort of most famous modern expression of these ideas in the serenity prayer uh, you know it's basically the courage to change the things that you can uh, this sort of uh, strength in various different ways to be okay with what you can't change but the wisdom to tell the difference is the key thing. That's basically what the prayer element is. Oh my goodness, please grant me this wisdom. Um, and obviously these different practices can help us to gain some of that wisdom, to be a little better attuned to where we're trying to control what we can't. And that's what's causing our misery, for example, in perfectionism, trying to control, you know, what we actually consist of in the world through the management of things that have nothing really to do with who we fundamentally are underneath these ideas about ourselves. So yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it, it can be a very, very fruitful path to inquiry, even to say, you know, let's look at the gray area and let's, let's play with it and see, see, see where we get. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, you know, it does get us into much more philosophical debates about agency and the boundaries of our agency and of course the stoics look lived in times where um where, where there was very little agency regarding politics for example political change and um interventions you know they were they were all um the creatures of eras with tyrannical rulers who had the power over life and death and um could order people to you know commit suicide um just on a whim so so there's also a historical context to stoicism that has has changed dramatically now because we do have more agency um and defining what the boundaries of our agency are is of course you know an altogether different <laughs> can of worms 
Well, especially given that, you know, the modern Western world in particular has overdosed on the other extreme with yes. this cult of the individual and the expectation that, you know, we can, in the consumer society, have everything we want if only we get enough money and uh, yeah, push the right levers of, of, of whatever machine it is that we think we're operating. Um, yes. So there is this expectation of being able to get what we want in a way that, you know, the world has never really ever delivered any people ever in history. Um, and so I think sometimes uh, I was wondering as I was reading whether this circle of control might also apply to what's an internal personal domain and what's a societal you know, construct within which we're operating. Because obviously on some level we can try to change the way that society is structured. Let's say neoliberal capitalism is the problem, let's dismantle it. But people have been saying that my entire adult life. I've had a go myself and uh, it still seems to be there. So uh, you know, we're, we're, we're at the same time trying to work on something that we might slowly over the course of decades have some influence over while accepting it's not going to happen immediately. And if we put our whole inner state as a sort of hostage to that project, which a lot of activists tend to do, and I think yeah. that's why they burn out, um, because they're not going to achieve this glorious goal, uh, then, you know, then we've we've given up that agency that we think we're expressing through activism. So it's a very delicate balance about, you know, what's, yeah, it is. what can be looked after inside ourselves in order to be more effective, perhaps, in taking action in the world. Yeah, absolutely. It's a great point, Daniel. And I, you know, burnout is is massive amongst uh, social change activists, partly because they have such high ideals and such high expectations, and they're fighting against very, very sol solidified structures. And um, when 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 they notice that their um, efforts don't yield the results that they were hoping that that causes massive pain. And I think that's true for a lot of workers in lots of different domains as well. You know, when the gap between the ideal and the reality of work becomes too, too great, um, that's when we start to burn out, right? When there's that chasm between what we're hoping for and what we want and, and what we realize seems to be the case on the ground. Um, so there's a lot about, you know, kind of, horizon of expectation again um and and how that can impact on us but i would also say you know coming back to a point that you made just now uh, that we um i think in the western world we tend to massively overestimate our agency and our you know the the strength of our willpower and um our capacity to change both ourselves and external structures and um and that can become a, a psychological burden as well you know and, and and there's a lot of very i would say very toxic self-help literature out there that um pushes this you know idea that we we just need to want things strong enough we just need to you know develop our willpower muscles and then we can achieve anything we want in this world totally disregarding you know, structural and economic realities and also psychological um, boundaries that, that we may have. Um, and I think that kind of self-help can be very toxic because, because it creates a lot of guilt and shame. Because when we don't achieve what we could in theory achieve, it's just our personal fault, right? Because we weren't strong enough, we didn't have enough resilience, and we, you know, just didn't 
manifest <laughs> hard and whatever we want <laughs> to manifest. So, so I do think um, some of these narratives are also really toxic, um, you know, because they, they, again, they're very neoliberal in the sense that they put all responsibility on the individual and they totally disregard structural um, realities. And that, that can never be helpful, you know, because there's always a balance between the two. hundred uh, percent agree. And uh, a lot of that mindset, it, you know, kind of infests the yoga world. And uh, people think of yoga philosophy as consisting of these things that have come out of the new thought movement in you know, America, basically invented by people who came up with book titles such as Think and Grow Rich. Um, yes. And uh, that certainly helped them to grow rich. <laughs> But coming coming back to tying things together, just to think about where we might go from here, um, you end the book, if, if I may be forgiven for, for jumping towards the, the, the last page you described in the beginning in the introduction, how in a way it's an invitation for people to dive in wherever they feel like. So it's not like you get to the end and that's that's the, the book spoiled. The journey is there wherever you might begin. You can choose your own adventure, as uh, books I used to read as a kid put it. Um, at the very end of talking about the zeitgeist, you're you're saying that there there is some need to find a way to you know I guess um, a vision of, of 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 a brighter future, and that's obviously what helps people to come out of burnout, as we've been talking about. But thinking on the social level, um, you know, what is the kind of vision that we need? You quote at the end, Nick Cave and um, he's talking about this uh, connection to the other whether it's people nature art or god and uh, it's particularly that last word that struck me and the the choice to put that in the final paragraph of the book um are you thinking that some form of religious uh, dimension is part of the solution of how we rethink some of these miscalibrated ways of understanding our place in the world Hmm. Yeah, I, I I think we probably need to develop a more kind of cosmological and planetary vision of who we are and what what we're doing, and um, and that we are completely relational beings you know that's another reason why i like the stoics because um the stoics had a very relational conception of the self as had most ancients right i mean that was all pre-individualist times but um but i would say that the idea of seeing ourselves as part of something bigger is really important you know to kind of develop that um, sense of our, I think Oliver Berkeman talks about cos cosmological insignificance therapy. Yes. You know, <laughs> beautiful concept of, of zooming out and realizing that we're a tiny speck in a very, very, very vast cosmos. And, um, and I think that can be a frightening inside, a frightening, um, thing to behold or it can also be soothing um you know and i think i think people who have a, a strongly developed um spiritual side would, would would see it as proof of our interconnectedness and our um you know our shared lot um and and i do think there's a lot of solace to be found in that and i would also say uh another thought I find soothing is that um, 
apocalyptic narratives about our present moment are also not new. <laughs> you know, again, again, the idea that um, we are living in the most threatening and um, most horrific and most potentially existentially devastating age possible. There are very good reasons for thinking that. Um, and there's a lot of evidence that it might indeed be the case, but people have always thought that about their age, yeah. you know, like narratives of apocalypse and ap apocalyptic end times are as old as humanity itself. Again, that gives me, gives me hope. Yeah, it's an interesting way of putting it. And it's a bit like the chapter that talks about death as a source of inspiration for living. And, uh, you know, it's it's a challenge to, to to confront one's own mortality. But again, you know, Oliver Berkman uh, wrote a quite eloquent and moving book about, you know, the reality that kicks in when you realise you're never going to get through your to-do list before your body collapses and it's all over. So better to just do one or two things well and enjoy them and get on with you know, making the most of this uh, this short and fleeting time we have. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, well, thank you very much, Anna. This has been a really rich and uh, inspiring conversation. And uh, if people do want to uh, explore a little bit further, uh, where can they find you? Yeah, um, thank you for the lovely conversation, Daniel. I really enjoyed it. Um, people can find me online. Um, so my website is um, annakschaffner.com. And um, there are lots of resources on my website as well, including a, a free guide to overcoming exhaustion. And I write a monthly newsletter with, you know, uh, solace and counsel, which um, might be of interest. And yeah, so I can be found on, on that website. Great, great. Well, thank you again. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And uh, I look forward to hopefully future conversations. It's been yeah, a great pleasure. Thank you. Thanks again.